Take your Bible tonight, if you would, and join me in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter number 8. We have begun a few weeks ago a, a series on Sunday nights that we have titled, He Must Increase. Um, there is a reminder that we made available, so I would encourage you, maybe you have picked one up and maybe you have not, maybe you'd like another one. There are some reminders. They're out in each of the lobbies. They're at each of the desks in the north, south, and main lobby. It's just a little sticker. It's something that is a visual in front of our eyes reminder. Uh, this last week, I think um, from the church office, they, they sent out some uh, wallpaper for your phone or something for a computer screen. I don't know how your mind works, but I do know that that which I oftentimes put in front of my eyes has some kind of potential to find its way to my heart. So I would encourage you, it might not be a sticker that is a help for you, but to keep in front of us on a continual basis the, the vital truth that we're exploring on Sunday nights, he must, it's not optional, it's not like a good idea, it's not, hey, this is, this is pro version of Christianity. It's just Christian life. And the Bible says he must. There is um, something that I haven't done for a while. So I, I'm saying I haven't done it for a while, but I'm not saying I, I will never see this happen again. But when, when we first moved to where we now live, um, we get on I-10 and then we get on to um, I-110. We start out on 110, then we go to 10. And then you pass a couple exits. And my exit is exit number five. So tonight after the service, the senior ministerial students are coming over to my house and we're going to watch the Super Bowl. So they're coming over and I'm giving you guys a heads up right now. I've done this before. I've done it more times than I would care to admit. But if you miss exit five, if you miss exit five, you're going to wind up, I think in Louisiana, okay? <laughs> so you seriously do, you do seriously wind up in Alabama if you miss exit five. So what you have to do then is you have to, of course, what you're supposed to do is you're not supposed to use one of those, you know, do not enter little cutoffs and, you know, do a UE on the interstate. You're not supposed to do that. I am not saying if, you know, I, well, let's just keep going. You're supposed to go to Alabama and you're supposed to, you know, get off and get on the exit and turn around and then get on the right pathway. So when we start thinking about this, this process, this, this principle, he must increase, I must decrease. We, we have to start thinking, what's the pathway that I'm currently on? And if I'm not currently on the pathway that is a decrease of myself and an increase of my savior, then at least I need to know I'm not on the right pathway. At least I should know what direction am I heading. And if I'm serious about he must increase and I must decrease, then if, if I'm serious, I want to know if I'm not going the right way, what is the pathway? How do I see Jesus increase? 
and me decrease. Again, over the last couple of weeks, we began by looking at the prerequisites. Okay, these are some early things that we have to understand. And then last week, we looked at the priorities. And then tonight, we're going to look at the pathway. What is the pathway to the magnification of Jesus Christ and then the minimizing of me? Let's say John 3.30 together. We've said it each night. So let's say John 3.30 together. I'll again say the reference. You jump right in with me with the passage. John 3.30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Let's do it one more time. John 3.30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Your Bibles are open right now to Mark chapter 8. We're going to look at some of the words of Jesus that help us understand him as our example And then the principle that he is presenting, this pathway to the increase of Christ and the decrease of self. First thing we're going to look at here is there's something that you and I, if we're going to be on the right pathway, there's something that we must lay down. What we must lay down. So what is that? Well, first, what we lay down is pretty significant. That is my life. What we lay down my life. The Bible says in Mark chapter 8, verse number 34. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, Jesus had already said that he's not going to ask them to do something that he was not prepared to do himself. He's not that kind of a leader. Now, just for clarity's sake, your leader is not supposed to do everything that you do. But your leader should be willing to, and all things being equal. I mean, just in the, the, the course of human life, your leader has probably, I'm talking about in a human sense, your leader has probably already done some of the things that they're asking you to do. But Jesus made it very clear, he's not going to ask you to charge ahead facing the enemy without him leading the way. Now, now he's asking something very significant. What do I have to lay down? Well, you're gonna have to lay down your life. Wow, this is something that is a major ask. Notice what he had already shared with his disciples. This is back in Mark chapter 8, verse number 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's himself, must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. You know what we see is the agenda of Jesus was to do whatever it was that the Father willed. This is the example of denying self that Jesus is leaving for us. He says, okay, if you're going to follow after me, this is what's required. This is the pathway to actually being a follower of me. Now, this is different than what we call self-denial. Denying self is different than self-denial, okay? Um, You know, self-denial is I'm only going to have one donut instead of three, okay? That is self-denial. That's really not what Jesus is speaking about here. There is a place in the Christian life for self-denial. 
Uh, the apostle Paul said, but I keep my body under and bring it into subjection. Lest that by any means, uh, after I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. He, he understands there is a place for self-denial, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. What he's talking about is the denying of self. Not just a personal discipline that keeps my body under. This is like, whoa, I, I have to deny me. What Jesus is saying is something like this. He's asking us to say, Lord, I surrender myself to you. My plans, my preferences, my friends, my reputation, my family, my comforts, my entertainments, my future, my time, myself. This is not the cost for your salvation. So don't anyone, you know, go away confused. Like, wow, to be a Christian, that, that is a, a radical. No, no, Christianity is completely taken care of exclusively beyond you. You can't do anything for your salvation. What Jesus is drawing up here are the terms of discipleship, not of sonship. Of sonship, all I have to do is, wow, accept the gift, no strings attached. Discipleship now. If I'm going to actually say, Jesus, would you be my teacher? I, I want to do what I am created to do. And there's no other way to accomplish that other than becoming a true follower of you. In our day, there are a lot of people that are on a quest to find themselves. And we hear a lot about it. Well, I'm just trying to discover who I really am. I'm trying to, you know, just get away from all the, the clutter and discover me. Sadly, that quest can never truly be fulfilled by looking for fulfillment in our natural desires or what your culture tells you that you have a right to pursue. Instead, you can only find your true self when you are found in him. Uh, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said it this way. It's a rather lengthy quote. So connect and, and think, process. The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him, that is Jesus, take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are all waiting for us in him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surrounding and natural desires. What I call my wishes become merely the desires thrown up by my physical organism or pumped into me by other men's thoughts. It is when I turn to Christ when I give myself up to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. It's only when I finally give myself up and embrace him that, that I truly have this real personality of myself. You say, well, how can that be? Wouldn't we all just be like these clones of, of everyone else? And here now we're all these robotic followers of Jesus and I've lost the real me. Actually, nothing could be further from the truth. 
Jesus Christ is so magnificent. His personality so varied, so, so, so wonderful that there is not enough people on the face of the earth, unique, distinct, culturally their own. They're different histories, they're different backgrounds, they're different experiences, all intended to be another reflection of Jesus Christ. The Bible says if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Can you imagine having never seen the light before? You've never experienced light. You've only been in darkness, but there's an offer for you. Now, someone is extending an invitation. They're telling you what light is like and that if you'll step into the light, the light will reflect off from you and you'll be able to see. But we're a little nervous about this and we're with this group of people who've never stepped into the light. And we think if we all step into the light, then the light will do something that is the same for all of us and we'll lose our identity. But actually nothing could be further from the truth. Once I step into the light, now I see the unique aspects of a person. I see the distinguishing marks of them. I'm not hidden by the darkness. Now the light has actually revealed that I am not the same as another. And so to the person that finally finds themselves absorbed in Jesus Christ, they begin to experience the real you, a personality that cannot be truly experienced, can't be truly seen apart from the light and life of Jesus Christ. Jesus is redefining his messianic mission in contrast to what others assumed it was supposed to be. And by the way, you know, Campus Church, all of us in here, we have expectations from others and they think we're supposed to be this way. Sometimes people throw that accusation at the church. Well, the church just says, you're supposed to be this, 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 and this. No, the church says we're supposed to be holy, even as he also is holy. If you want to talk about a, a, a cookie cutter, so to speak, personality, that's what is offered to you by the world. Well, you're supposed to do this, this, and this. That, that is a lie that has never offered true fulfillment. Ask the people, and I, I know this is... This is somewhat circumstantial, but it's repeating itself over and over again. The people who finally reach the pinnacle of what the world says you're supposed to pursue. And then they find themselves trying to, trying to get some meaning from life, some answer through substance abuse, through abuse of their body, through exploration. Through, through something that must have an answer because when they finally get to where they think they want to be, they find this is not where I want to be at all. So Jesus, he's, he's redefining. Did the people know, were they looking to Jesus as their Messiah? Like, hey, this is the, of course they looked at Jesus as their Messiah. But they, they had a different impression of what that Messiah was supposed to look like. The true meaning of life in Jesus and his mission was not about proving that he was going to make it and that this poor carpenter from Nazareth was really going to do something with his life, proving the doubters and the haters wrong. Instead, it was what his victory would come in doing 
the will of the Father. And only in submitting to the Father would he actually pave the way for all who would follow him to truly save their lives. What is Jesus doing? If you're wanting to walk on the pathway that is he must increase, we begin by laying down our lives. Well, then he, he goes a little bit further in this Mark passage, Mark chapter eight, verse 34, and that is what to pick up. Okay, I know there's something to lay down. Okay, so what do I pick up? Well, what to pick up? That is your cross, your cross. Again, look at Mark chapter eight, verse number 34. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, first, I want us to be clear about what we are not saying. Um, oftentimes, have you ever heard, maybe you've used the expression, well, I'm just, um, you know, that is my cross to bear. And sometimes we use it in, in expressing the dynamics of maybe a strained relationship. Uh, maybe it's a physical impairment. Maybe it's a challenging spouse. Uh, maybe it's being overlooked by others. Uh, maybe it's serving in a thankless position. It could be all kinds of different things. And we say, well, you know, this is just my cross to bear. When Jesus carried his cross up Golgotha, it was no symbol of suffering. It meant one thing and only one thing. It meant that there was going to be death. He's asking us to lay down our life and then he's asking us to pick up, carry our cross. And I just want to again note, no one in Jesus' day, now today we do this. Today, um, you might have a cross um, that is a pendant on a necklace. Uh, you might have, sometimes we see uh, crosses as earrings and, and, and I don't have any issue with any of this. We, 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 in many different religious settings, we put crosses at the, the pinnacle of a steeple. We place them on churches. We, we have them on our Bibles. Uh, we, we wear them as little symbols on our shirts. We have a cross everywhere. But I'm telling you, in Jesus' day, nobody would put the symbol of a cross on anything. Nobody is, nobody is making a, a nice ring with a cross on it. Nobody is going to even carry one around as this picture of, no one is going to glory in the cross. The cross in Jesus' day is absolutely nothing but a sinner's shame. Nothing to be gloried in, nothing to be elevated. It is humiliation. And in that humiliation, it will culminate in death. So for Jesus to say in that day, so put it in context culturally, this, we, we are, you know, we're 2,000 years past the cross and we glory today in the cross. But in Jesus' day, he's saying, okay, if you're gonna follow me, you're gonna have to lay down your life. Do you know how the crowds would have thinned out when he said, and take up your cross? I mean, the, the, you could hear the audible murmur in the crowd when Jesus says, and take up your cross and follow me. Because who in the world wants to take up a cross? So yes, the belief that Jesus was actually the Messiah, everywhere prevalent. 
But the disciples and the crowds had a deeply distorted view of what that meant. The crowds thought that it meant he's going to heal us. He's going to feed us. He's going to empower us. He's going to restore our nationality. He's going to do all the things that we want him to do as opposed to us doing what he wants us to do. One commentator wrote, in the first century, the cross was an image of extreme repugnance. It was an instrument of cruelty, pain, dehumanization, and shame. The cross symbolized Roman oppression and was reserved for the lowest social classes. It was the most visible and omnipresent aspect of Rome's terror apparatus designed especially to punish criminals and quash slave rebellions. Ultimately, the image of the cross signifies a total claim on the disciples' allegiance and the total relinquishment of their resources to Jesus. When Luke is quoting this passage, the passage that we're referencing from Mark 8, he gives us an additional insight. And notice what Luke says. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he said unto them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And here's our added word. Daily and follow me. Okay, now again, don't be confused about this. So let's, let's draw an important distinction. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Years ago, I was preaching at a conference and I, I included in the message the idea of dying daily. And um, some wonderful people, friends of mine, said, hey, can we talk to you about that? Do you know, I died once with Jesus, just once. But today, I am to daily recognize that relinquishment. That I am, in fact, crucified with Christ. How many times crucified with Christ? Just once, one time only. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness came by the law, by my works, then Christ is dead in vain. Do you know what Paul's saying? He's saying, listen, you died once. Your crucifixion, Jesus' crucifixion became yours. You, you, you have complete penalty paid in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Okay, so, so what's this idea of, of dying daily? Well, again, when you were saved, you died with Christ, but this is not a daily crucifixion. It's a daily denial of self, a daily acceptance of whatever it is that God has for you. So I just, again, we're supposed to come daily and say, Lord, what do you want for me today? Today, I recognize that I did die with you at Calvary. That crucifixion is mine. And now I will take up, so to speak, the recognition of that death, my cross. And today I will again follow you. Why would anyone do this? Because even if I were to gain the whole world, it cannot be traded as useful currency for what Jesus did in the saving of your soul. Mark chapter eight, verse 36, for what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? 
The question actually all boils down to this, and that is, which world are you living for? The man who literally tried it all, that is Solomon, looked back on a life that was wasted. And he looked at it from the vantage point of age, and he summarized his life in one word, vanity. The guy who had it all, If you wanted to talk about a guy who you could follow and and look at everything he posted and say, man, that guy's got it all. Solomon, the guy who did have it all, he summarizes the whole thing in one word and he says, it's just vanity. It didn't amount to anything. Vanity of vanities, all is all of what I have experienced. If you wanna talk about physical pleasure, what he did with his body with other women, There's nobody that would be able to rival what Solomon experienced. If you want to talk what he did with the best of wines, if you wanted to talk about what he did with the greatest of comforts, if you want to talk about what he did with exploring the greatest pursuits, Solomon is the guy to talk to. And Solomon says, listen, it's not what it's all cracked up to be. Yeah, everything I heard about that life, it came back to me as vanity of vanity. Everything I experienced, vanity. So what do we pick up? Our cross, not his. Jesus already carried his cross. He says, now you have one to carry. And here's where I think oftentimes is the the rub for us. We confuse ours with his. Okay, the Bible says he knoweth our frame. In other words, he knows what we're made of. You and I were never intended to carry his cross. That was his. Do you ever get a little bit nervous when you look at the cross that God asks someone else to carry? Like, wow, that's a heavy cross. Uh, Lord, I, I don't know if I could actually pick up that cross. Well, he's not asking you to. He's, he's asking you to carry yours. The burden that is yours that, that thing that is, is designed for you and you for it. Like you can carry this cross. Trust me. Doesn't it come down then literally to a matter of do I trust God or not? So what do we pick up? Our cross. Okay, lastly, where do we, where do we wrap this up? We see what to lay down. That is your life. God, what's the pathway to you increasing, me decreasing? Well, I have to lay something down. That's my life. What do I have to pick up? My cross. And then how do we wrap this up? Well, who do I go after? Who do I go after? And that is the Savior. Uh, Mark chapter 8, verse number 34. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And here it is. He's not asking anything extravagant. He just says, all right, come on now, follow me. When we have a wrong view of messiahship, we will have a wrong view of discipleship. And the word deny here is what Peter did to Christ. Do you remember that Jesus tells Peter, he says, before the rooster crows, you're gonna deny me thrice. Okay. And uh, Lord, these all, they might deny you, but not me, I, I will never do that. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Before the rooster crows, three times. 
Well, he did. He denied him. It's the same word. So you either acknowledge and follow Christ or you deny him. And, and Peter, in that instance, he denies his Savior. So what is it that he's asking us to do? Jesus is saying we're to daily do something ourselves. It is the denial of self, our rights, any claim, any thought. Just this idea of, Lord, I want to follow you. Obviously, to effectively follow, you must first order yourself behind, not before the one you're following. Okay, okay, take up your cross daily, follow me. All right, that means I'm going to start to arrange myself in a position, Lord, where my eyes are on you. So what do you want me to do next? Again, remember, he knows you. Don't be afraid. Don't be hesitant. Like, oh, what if he asks me to, to oh, Lord, if you ask me to, don't be afraid. I, even, I just read this in some secular article. This, this was not a, a Bible passage. This was not a sermon. But some secular article wrote this, wrote, this, um, wrote this piece about happiness is never found in pursuing the same. I thought, whoa, they're stumbling onto something. Do you, do you want to stumble, so to speak, on happiness? True joy? Follow Jesus. Get behind him and say, all right, Lord, I'm watching you. What do you want me to do? Don't be afraid. Like, well, what's that going to cost me? What you really should ask is, what's it going to cost me to not follow him? What's going to happen if I don't line up and say, Jesus, what do you want me to do? If I don't do that, oh, that should strike some fear in our minds. That that should be the situation that causes us a little bit of anxiety. Like, oh, what's going to happen in my life? Listen, don't worry about following Jesus. He has what you need, and it's good. I, I, I find that often in our lives, we, we do kind of stumble upon happiness when we're following him. Surely goodness and mercy, goodness. Like, wow, I got to taste again and see the Lord is good. Mercy, follow me all the days of my life when I keep my eyes on the good shepherd. Well, what, you know, what if he asked me to marry somebody that I don't want to marry? Seriously, I mean, the God who made you is going to ask you to marry someone that you don't want to marry? Like, okay, Lord, well, take up my cross and I'm going to marry her. <laughs> God's not going to do that. Like, oh, Lord, I just don't know if I could, oh, if, if he is my cross, so be it. Lord. That's not what God is doing in your life. Well, what if he asked me to do something like occupationally? What if I had to, if you're a college student here, what if I had to change my major to take up my cross and follow him? I, I will tell you the truth. Again, this is, this is only, you know, experiential. But boy, have I had this on multiple occasions. I've had people tell me, you know, I sure wish I would have. You know, back when I was, and I knew God was calling me to, I wish I would have. I mean, I, I don't have those conversations for people saying, I'm so glad I never followed Jesus. I'm so glad I didn't pick up my cross and follow him. That was a close one. Th those are not the conversations that I have. 
And that's, that's just my comments. It's, it's not worth a whole lot, but the word of God that says, okay, here's your invitation. He must increase. We must decrease. How am I gonna get there? Okay, I, I have to know what I have to lay down. There is something I have, to, I have to pick up and there is only one person I have to follow. This becomes now my pathway to Jesus truly increasing, magnifying Christ, minimizing me. This becomes the challenge that most of us face. We place ourselves in front of Jesus and ask him to follow us. Jesus, why don't you come behind? I want you to bless my plans. I want you to make my path a little easier. Uh, Jesus, please keep me from heartache and hardship. And instead of just saying, Jesus, I trust you. You lead. I will follow. I'm not trying to say that your life is going to be the, the, the path strewn with the rose petals. And, and this is just going to be such an easy life. But I will tell you there's nothing that compares with that life. It's what you were built for. It's why God created you for something bigger than self. And isn't it interesting that when we start to embrace the very purpose for which we were created, we start to find that there is real fulfillment for self. I wasn't pursuing that. I, I just was pursuing Jesus. And lo and behold, what did I find? Sometimes missionaries, it's been a longstanding tradition that many of them would write a letter and leave it with a loved one, and especially those who have been serving in, in perilous circumstances or settings. So they would write a letter, seal it, and it was to be opened only upon their demise, their death. And such was the case with Miss Karen Watson. She wrote a letter and she understood what it meant to say, he must increase, I must decrease. So Miss Watson was a member of Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California. She'd been saved for about eight years and she sensed that God was calling her to missionary service in Iraq. And again, in the tradition of missionaries, she wrote a letter to her church family in the event of her loss. And she was serving in Iraq in 2004 when the vehicle she was traveling in was ambushed. So she was one of four people who died in the attack. And her letter was dated March 7th, 2003, and it was opened upon the news of her death. And here's how it read. Dear Pastor Phil and Pastor Roger, you should only be opening this letter in the event of death. When God calls, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible, my heart for the nations. I wasn't called to a place. I was called to him. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory was my reward. His glory is my reward. One of the most important things to remember right now is to preserve the work. I am writing this as if I am still working among my people group. 
I thank you all so much for your prayers and support. Surely your reward in heaven will be great. Thank you for investing in my life and spiritual well-being. Keep sending missionaries out. Keep raising up fine young pastors. In regards to any service, keep it small and simple. Yes, simple. Just preach the gospel. Be bold and preach the life-saving, life-changing, forever eternal gospel. Give glory and honor to our Father. She was living the reality of he must increase and I must decrease. She knew what it meant to live with the reality of taking up her cross daily and following him. It was the pathway to magnifying Jesus and minimizing self. So the question is, are we prepared to take up our cross daily and follow him? It is the pathway to him increasing and us decreasing.